WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening. Thank you for tuning in to Exposure. It is September 10th, and I'm Abby Newton. This weekend was an exciting time to be a Spartan fan. On Saturday, Michigan State played the University of South Florida in football. Fans shuffled into the stadium, ready to cheer for the colors of green and white. However, with 10 minutes until the start of the game, severe weather struck. Everyone was asked to leave the stadium, but Spartan students decided against the request. Police started to demand leave, but students stood their ground. Suddenly, Tom Izzo appeared and asked the students to follow orders. And that's all it took. Students left in lieu of the respected basketball coach. The game did go on, and the Spartans were victorious. But today on Exposure, we are shifting gears away from football to talk about the turmoil in Egypt, the economic effects of abusive partners, a new partnership within the graduate school at Michigan State University, and Hope Gangloff, an artist that came to East Lansing from New York City. Lastly, we will close the evening with a performance by the Lansing-based band Desmond Jones. Their music will be playing throughout the show. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. First on Exposure, Anas Atal is a senior international relations student at Michigan State University who was born in Syria. As America is deciding what to do amidst the violence in the country, we hear Anas's perspective. We started with the events that happened in the beginning of the summer, the ousting of President Morsi. While Morsi was uh, democratically elected, he, he, wasn't, uh, he did not preserve the democracy in his country. For example, uh, the Constitution, was, which excluded uh, some of the uh, country's population uh, and minorities, um, were passed by, not, uh, by majority, like 51, 60. But uh, things like this need supermajority. Uh, such thing like Constitution. It should, they shouldn't be uh, you know, exclusive of some uh, minorities. And uh, other decisions I'm not uh, totally aware of. I have spoken to some of my uh, Egyptian friends. They explained it uh, to me and that, you know, that he wasn't going on the path they were envisioning, uh, the democratic path. So what the military did to preserve democracy, out uh, said it, uh, mercy, and they gave him warning. They told him, you know, let's do referendum, let's do this and that. And a fun fact, more people protested against Morsi than against Mubarak, the former president. Mm-hmm. So if you, you want to look at it in, in terms of democracy, you know, what exactly do you look at? There are so many things that define democracy. Elections is not everything. Election is not democracy. So the people, you know, which, 
you know, are the ones who should be represented, weren't, or the majority of them weren't represented, and that's why they went uh, on the streets on large numbers. However, this caused some people, the Brotherhood, to be upset, and uh, therefore you have the protests. The military's uh, reactions against uh, the Brotherhood, I don't agree with. I don't think they should be that violent, you know, kids should be not tortured. So you see violence from both sides, uh, however, um, the military should be more responsible towards its citizens, should uh, provide, uh, you know, safe areas for uh, protests. They have the right to protest, you know, they do have a right. Mm -hmm. And when we were talking before, you called this a great movement, almost a revolution. Why do you say that? Because um, a lot of people took the streets and you know their demands uh, they had legitimately demands they know what they want the people want a country for everyone in egypt to be represented everyone to have a chance not a small segment of people and that's why i go that's what we want in the middle east we want you know everyone in the middle east despite of their religious background despite of their ethnic because you have lots of diversity in the middle east we don't want one even if it's the majority which i am one of them to be the only one who's represented in the Middle East. The Middle East without Christians, without uh, Druze, without Kurds, without Jews, is not the Middle East, you know? Mm -hmm. So we want to preserve our identity, and it is important to have those, all those uh, ethnics and religious groups. And with that has come a lot of violence. And what is it like for you, in, being in America and watching this violence in your country and in the Middle East? It is difficult, however, you know, this is understandable. For example, if I could bring the American Revolution, you know, uh, after they uh, got their independence from the colonies, few years later you had the civil war. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a full democracy. Uh, until now, we're still figuring out democracy in the U.S. We can't, you know, one could argue that we are not still perfect democracy, which may, there might be not, not such thing. So, you know, you had the civil war, some people died, and then, you know, people started figuring it out. The middle, in the Middle East, we have the same thing. In the Middle East, although we are like ancient civilization, however, we are new countries. The Middle East was divided in 1916 after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and was colonized. So Middle Eastern didn't have the chance to, uh, you know, figure their, their things, you know, their democracy out or the way they want to be uh, ruled. And in the Middle East, since it was divided, uh, Middle Eastern did not, you know, it's hard to identify, identify yourself, you know, say, oh, I'm Syrian. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. You know, so people uh, did not fight for their uh, borders as in Europe or the U.S. You know, they, you, know you didn't set the... the Parameters and yeah. borders. Mm -hmm. So they, it was just given to you. And people who may have not uh, supposed to live by themselves, lived by, you know, uh, you know, among each other did. And, you know, it wasn't well done. And that's why now you have this. And this, because of the colonies, you had uh, dictators afterwards, so to prevent uh, uh, imperialism into coming the Middle East. And then with the dictatorship, you have, uh, you know, brutal regimes, you have this and that. And then people started to say, you know, we need a change. Mm -hmm. it's, it's costly, you know. And you still have family who live in the country. So what are their perceptions of what is happening? Uh, well, it's very difficult to uh, have uh, relatives living in, in, you know, in Syria now because... Uh, I'm always, you know, I have reminded of uh, their uh, difficulties and their, you know, 
lack of resource the lack of resources they have and it's very hard you know like having to live here in the u.s you know trying to study trying to work trying to live your normal life as a person you know joke enjoy your life while you know your family is still in danger it's a lot more difficult difficult that than if i were to be there if i were to be there at least you know i would know i'm next to them you know, I could wake up one day and find out that, you know, one of the houses was bombed or, as I showed you, or uh, someone forgot but got killed or something. Mm-hmm. So it's hard. And then now anyone in Syria became, becomes my family. Like, it doesn't have to be, they don't have to be directly related to me, you know. It's a fellow Syrian, so, you know, I sympathize with them. Because you have that bond in what you're going through together, almost. Yeah. Although Whether, you're across you know, the sea. <laughs> despite of their uh, political... Uh, you know, opinions. As long as, you know, one does not advocate uh, violence, you know, he's my brother mm-hmm. or she is my sister. Yeah. And we talked a little bit of before the interview, but do you ever feel guilty that you're here in America and you're not experiencing the turmoil firsthand in Syria? Yeah, I feel uh, very guilty because, uh, again, you know, I'm trying to live this life. I'm trying to progress in life. I'm trying to do this and that. But... Uh, my family is suffering the people you know are going through this what i call great movement although some people may disagree but uh, i think it's a great movement it's a revolution you know we want democracy we want everyone to be represented in the country we want a syria for everyone not one family and uh, i f- i would feel guilty in many years after i go back and say hey you know i was part of this you know but, but i didn't do anything and how do you cope with that well, I try to be uh, successful in my life. I, t- you know, I changed my major from business into international relations. I'm trying to go into law. I think, uh, you know, after the end of the, the war, you know, there will be need uh, of expertise. There will be need of, you know, enforcement of law. So if I could uh, become successful, if I study well, one day hopefully I could go back and share my knowledge and uh, make uh, my country a better place for us and everyone in the world to visit. And speaking with those international relations, what are your thoughts on how America should intervene in what is happening in Syria? Well, it's it's difficult to give my own thought mm-hmm. because I really am not sure yet. However, uh, both uh, you know arguments have very strong uh, bases. On one hand, if let's say the United States, uh, first of all, before I go into that, uh, I really admire the decision of the president to take the to consult uh, the Congress. I think it's very important to uh, consult the people. It's very important uh, to have our voices heard. We fight for principles in Syria. We don't fight uh, for, for, you know, uh, only uh, you know our own interests. Our principle is democracy, and therefore, you know, we would like countries who interfere in Syria to also, you know, adhere to these uh, principles. And if the Congress does not pass it, I don't think the United States should strike. However. Now into the topic, if the United States strikes, we want to look at whether the United States is, prom- is promoting the uh, interest of uh, the Syrian people or its own interest. Is Obama trying to save face? What will be the consequences of the bombing? Will it actually make a change? Will it actually help the Syrian uh, case? Are there strong evidence uh, that the Assad regime used chemical weapons? The use of chemical weapons is uh, undoubtable, I think. But uh, who used it? I believe, you know, despite who I believe used it, I would like to see 
more evidence, clear evidence that of who used it. And um, so if that striking helps the interest of the Syrian people, then, you know, a yes would be, you know, I would lean towards yes. However, if we don't strike, will the chemical weapons be used again? What are the consequences? So I don't think such a heinous uh, attack uh, should be uh, unpunished, punished, unpunished. Mm -hmm. so there has to be some action taken. So both, if you don't strike, you know, there might be uh, use of chemical weapons in the future, the, you know, the, it might, you know, escalate even more. If you do use it, you know, what are the consequences? Will it turn into regional war? Will it turn into World War Three? I don't know. I mean, hopefully not, but I don't hope any war would, you know, like, you know, the world does not expand, but uh, we need to look closely. I'm sure the administration has um, more knowledge in this. I'm, I'm sure, you know, I trust that they would, but I really hope that they would be in the favor of the interests of the Syrian people. But uh, we also uh, want to ask uh, that if there an alternative, um, of course, uh, we have no uh, alternative to political solution in which all parties come to uh, negotiation tables. The only dispute is whether uh, we have preconditional uh, negotiations in which al-Assad has to be out or uh, no preconditional negotiations in which al-Assad is a part of the new transitional government and Syrian people vote for what they want. And do you feel like your opinion is shared by many of the people in Syria? Or is it mixed? What are your thoughts on that? How do I say? My friends, mm -hmm. family, and like the people I know, I would say 99% of them want a strike. Okay. They want a way out. So every, every almost, except probably very few people I know, Everyone else want to strike, want to get out of this. They think of the strike as something that weakens al-Assad. They want al-Assad out, help, like, anyway. And they think only a superpower is able to do that. Because there isn't, you know, uh, real support for the Free Syrian Army, which is also cap capable of doing that. But if that doesn't uh, exist, then you only have a superpower that, on, yeah, that could do that. And you said earlier that you were going to become a citizen of America in December, very soon. So do you feel like as a citizen of America, you feel like our country, so it would become your country too, has a responsibility to help Syria and countries who are in need in that democratic fight? Yeah, I think so. Not not only because I'm going to become a citizen, also because as a international relation majors, you know, we, we've been figuring out the international system for a long time. And now, you know, as you have super uh, powers, you know, we like you have two hegemonies, so it's like balance of power. So their responsibility is to ensure peace in the, in the world because, um, you know, they get their resources from the world. So it's uh, the world we share, you know, the, the boundaries... Uh, where, you know, the, the boundaries that is supposed to divide us into countries and people, you know, only, you know, limit us as a human. We came to this earth uh, as a human. We live to, you know, like at the very beginning, they spoke the same language. They were, we're a human, you know, I, you know, you have a skin, I have skin, you have eyes. I don't see, you know, that those, oh, those are different people. We know we shouldn't interfere in their business. I personally, you know, not only as an American, as a Syrian, as whomever I am, I am a human. Uh, when we go to sleep, we all, you know, you know, are human. We don't speak, <laughs> but uh, I think it is uh, 
superpower's uh, responsibility to uh, end the conflict. The United States is a superpower and uh, it has responsibilities. Uh, so yeah, mm -hmm. I do think. Uh, do you still feel a sense of hope in your country that it will get better, that there is an exciting future ahead? Definitely. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. I could also mention the French Revolution. I could mention so many revolutions. You know, one may argue that, oh, you know, Syrian revolution is different, but it's the same phases, you know. D democracy is not an easy goal. It's not an easy thing to achieve. You have to change, you know, lots of things. Uh, after we change the political system, we have to go through social, you know, movement. You have to change the, you know, mentality of the... It's difficult. It's a very tough route to take. Uh, lots of obstacles but uh, whether i have a hope of course i have a hope i think you know and the you know people uh, took the states for a reason you know they want everyone in the country to be represented you know muslims were next to christians were next to you know everyone and then they the muslim hold uh, held the the bible you know they held the cross you know going on the streets we say you know we want everyone in this country and that's you know how it is in the us you know you know, you live next to your neighbor, you know, probably from different country, probably from different religion. And that's what we want. So the United States had difficulties to get to this point. It wasn't uh, a linear, uh, you know, how do you say, line in which, Even you know, yeah. Simple, no challenge. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> easy like street. this easy. It was difficult. The French had it uh, difficult also. They went through phases of democratization and de-democratization so many times, you know. Um, so yeah, like Spain, all these, Italy, many countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I have hope. Yes. Anas, thank you very much. Thank you very much. The Eli and Edith Broad Art Museum welcomed contemporary art, a visitor from New York, and live music on Friday. Hope Gangloff visited East Lansing to showcase her talents and share her knowledge as Wayne Zielinski and People's Temple performed during an exciting Friday night at the Broad. Impact was on the scene. It is not often that an artist gets a chance to become the subject in a piece of work. But for Donald Stahl, a photographer from New York City, the opportunity presented itself when his friend and contemporary artist Hope Gangloff requested his assistance. One day she asked me to sit for her. He's just such a nice guy and has such crazy looking eyes. I was like, oh, I can see painting him. He's fun to hang out with. It's always really nice because she has a really great atmosphere. It's like a, she's a good conversationalist. It's not like some intense thing where you sit in complete silence and it's, it's fun and usually you're uh, watching something. Um, I know for this painting here, I was watching a lot of Game of Thrones while I was sitting for it. Now Hope is an artist in New York who produces vibrant and honest portraits of her friends. Through her unique style, she depicts her version of the modern American life. Stahl says he was pleased with how his portrait turned out. 
Uh, I was happy with it. I thought it was really nice. It wasn't. Um, I think a lot of times when people see like photos or pictures of themselves, the, the initial impulse is to kind of look for the faults or whatever. So when I send somebody a picture, a lot of times they come back with like, I look old or I look fat or you know. And and this one, I think I just went in without any expectations or you know, I, I didn't expect anything or to be portrayed a certain way. And I, I was happy with how she did it. Hope says she usually likes to have a personal connection to people before she paints them. Often, her subjects, like Donald Stahl, are friends. Yeah, but I think it's good with your friends because you already have, like, sort of a rapport and it's easier to, like, just kind of try stuff out. But I think, uh, you know, usually, I think friend or not a friend, if you're sitting for an artist, you just kind of, like, leave it up to them and listen to them and take their cues. And Hope ventured to the Broad Art Museum to showcase her talents this past weekend. She says painting portraits is how she connects with those around her and how she related to her peers as a child. When you're a kid, you just do cartoons of the way that the way that your mom drives badly. You know, you like start doing cartoons and you get the likeness. Uh, I don't. It just it, it was a fun way to entertain and tease and relate to my peers and family. People from the area gather to engage with Hope and enjoy the new exhibit. Community resident Kazako Thonton says she appreciates the difficulty of contemporary art. Well, contemporary art is a very difficult art to understand. Some uh, you love it immediately, some you wonder what is this for, but the more you learn, the more you understand it, the better it gets. Yeah, it is a very uh, wonderful for our brains. Now Hope also came to East Lansing to embark on a unique mission. The Broad requested Hope's skills to paint a mural on one of the walls of the museum. The catch? The wall reaches about two stories and is actually ankle. Well, you know, you should try leaning up against this wall. It is a real killer, so it's not really a vacation. It's, it's seriously, I, I wear knee pads, and I lean against the wall, and I have to bend my back like this to kind of hold a cup, brace my elbow, and paint. It's outrageous. It's a crazy Just angle. like Hope doesn't plan out her pieces of work before she paints them. Once the person's there, then I start planning. I kind of hop around in front of the canvas, make a couple marks, try to figure out how to fit people onto the canvas. She didn't plan on hopping around as she scaled the wall of the Broad Art Museum this weekend. However, she enjoys the challenge. And as the contemporary art was showcased inside, performing art was showcased in the courtyard of the museum on Friday. Wayne Zielinski and People's Temple performed into the night as Hope Gangloff, Donald Stahl, and the community celebrated the new exhibit. For Impact News, I'm Abby Newton. Dating violence in adolescence can, in fact, lead to less education and lower earnings later in life, a Michigan State University researcher found. Adrian Adams is an assistant professor in psychology at Michigan State and was the lead researcher in this investigation. We spoke with her about the findings. I got interested in researching the economic effects of domestic violence um, when I was an undergraduate student and I worked at a domestic violence shelter. When I worked at the shelter, I heard story after story from women who had come to the shelter to leave an abusive relationship. And they often had really tremendous financial barriers to being able to find a place of their own, um, to find a job, to get transportation. It was really hard to do those kinds of things that you need to be able to do to reestablish your life separate from an abusive partner. 
And then your research looks specifically at the adolescence abuse. And so can you talk more about your research and how you went about researching that? Um, most of the work to date has focused on abuse in adult relationships mm -hmm. and looking at the economic effect of, adult, of abuse in adult relationships. And so I was interested in taking a step back and looking to see, does this begin earlier in women's lives? During these formative years, when girls are first beginning to date and having those early relationships, is does abuse that happens at that time start to have an impact on women's financial trajectory? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where we focused for this particular study. You found that it, it affected them and impacted them, but how so? To what degree, I suppose? Um, so this is a sample of 498 women who were receiving welfare assistance at the time that the study began, and it was a longitudinal study. So they were interviewed multiple times over several years. And we looked at um, how experiences of dating violence during their teen years impacted their educational attainment and their employment or their earnings through employment in adulthood. And what we found was um, that the experience of teen dating violence led to reduced educational attainment. So they, they earned less, you know, lower, a lower degree. Um, and as a result, earned less money through employment in adulthood. And um, in terms of the amount of money, it was a particularly low income sample. Mm -hmm. These were women in poverty. Mm -hmm. um, imagine having $7,000 um, of, of income a year um, through, through employment. And so for each additional year of education that women completed, they had a, an additional $855 in their pocket, which when you earn $7,000 is a substantial amount of money. Absolutely. What's really important to take away from this study is that abuse that, exper that teens experience that girls experience in their teenage years can have an impact not only on their um, mental health, their physical health, their academic, um, you know, their performance in school, but it can ultimately have an impact on their education and their ability to earn a living as an adult. So it is extremely influential in this other important area of girls' lives. And given this, it's important that we have really strong school-based and community-based prevention education programs and other types of prevention programs that target teens um, during those formative years mm -hmm. um, and help to prevent it from happening in the first place. Um, I think we need to be able to provide good, strong supports for teachers to identify it, to know how to intervene for peers um, to identify abuse when it's happening amongst their friends and know how to intervene to stop it or how to call it, uh, an adult's attention to it. Um, I think that in addition to prevention, we need really strong intervention. And, and the distinction there is intervention is after the fact. Um, mm -hmm. And we need to provide, I think, education and employment supportive resources to women to help them go back to school to help them advance their education and their skill sets to get the type of jobs that provide enough money that a woman could provide for her family on her own and not have to rely on an abusive partner. Um, because a, money is a huge barrier to women being able to leave an abusive relationship. And it's a barrier that we have the ability and the power um, as a community, as a society to do something about, to address it. It's one barrier we have the ability to remove mm -hmm. um, from women's lives so that they can be free from abuse. Because that is, in a sense, your, your economic independence is, has a lot to do with your societal independence as well. Exactly. Your, your, your options are really limited in a lot of ways by the resources that you have. Mm -hmm. The more money you have, the more opportunity and choices you have. That's the reality of, of life. 
Um, and so um, having a lack of resources and a lack of money means reduced options and reduced opportunities for women to leave an abusive relationship. And d- did women want to leave the abusive relationship or know how when you were doing your study? And even maybe with your experience in the domestic violence shelter as well. Yeah, I can't speak to that um, from the study, Mm -hmm. but I can speak to it from my experience working in in the field and from um, the other practitioners that I that I um, work with now. Um, You know, that's that's the biggest question that people ask is why don't they just leave? And um, the reality is that leaving isn't always the best and safest choice for women. when women leave abusive relationships, oftentimes that's when the abuse escalates and becomes even more severe. And that's the time in which women's lives are in the most danger. And we see um, when women are, um, when batterers kill their partners, it's often after they leave because um, they've lost that control mm-hmm. um, in that relationship. Um, and so, you know, we, we ask the question, why don't they leave? There's a lot of reasons related to their safety and a lot of reasons related to money mm-hmm. and not just having the not having the financial means to do it. Mm-hmm. And so the question, I think, isn't why doesn't she leave, but why doesn't he stop abusing her? I like that better. Yeah. <laughs> and looking back at your experiences, again, at the domestic violence shelter, what was that like? I mean, you operated the phones and so the crisis line. Mm-hmm. What was it like hearing these stories and trying to help? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I was really young. I was in my early 20s. I was an undergraduate student, and, and right after I graduated, I continued to work there before I went on to graduate school. Um, it was really impactful. Um, I heard stories that I could never even imagine. Um, I, you know, I bear witness to a lot of just horrific, horrific things that's hard to wrap your head around. Um, and you want to do everything in your power to help, right? Mm-hmm. You want to you feel like you want to save you want to save them, right? And I know that a lot of a lot of students who go into human services. Um, I work with a lot of undergrad students who are, want to do this kind of work, um, and you want to, you know, be do everything you can possibly do um, to help them because it is so impactful. Um, but I learned that women know what's best for their lives, and your 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 job is to provide information, resources, and connect them with what we have that's out there, so that they can make the best choice that's possible um, for them in their lives. And you know that's the whole reason I went on to get um, my PhD is because you know working in a shelter, I felt like my in a lot of ways, because I was like story after story of women who are struggling and end up going back to their partner, end up going back to, back home to their abuser. I thought there's got to be more we can do. And I just couldn't see myself continuing to work um, in providing that, that um, direct service um, in, in that way day in and day out. I wanted to take a step back and take a look at the problem mm-hmm. more holistically and globally and say, try to better understand why it was happening and where are important points of intervention. How can we make this better for women as a, as a community um, and as a society? And I thought a PhD was the way to do that. And so <laughs> and here I like am. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. Through research. Mm-hmm. And that's what yes. a PhD does, right? You, exactly. you, we, we call attention to issues like this through our research and try to find solutions through research. Well, it looks like you have, you're on your way there. So Thank we you. appreciate your efforts in bringing light to this big issue. Thanks. Thanks.
The Council of Graduate Students at Michigan State, or COGS, just expanded their outreach as they have a new partnership with the MSU Federal Credit Union and the MSU Vice President of Research and Graduate Studies. I spoke with COGS President Stephen Fletcher and Sarah Bowen, the Vice President of Corporate Relations at the Federal Credit Union, about what this partnership means. Actually, this is a, a partnership that uh, uh, almost uh, predates uh, this. The, the credit union has been uh, a very good supporter of the Graduate Academic Conference that COGS puts on uh, on an annual basis, uh, uh, which is a, a research conference that, that COGS hosts. Uh, uh, in the spring, COGS looked at uh, wanting to expand its conference grant program. It's one of our most popular programs uh, that sends graduate and professional students to conferences across the country and, and sometimes internationally. Uh, COGS devotes a large portion of our budget to the program, but we weren't uh, fulfilling all of the need that was there. Um, so we looked at... Uh, 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 our options, and uh, I was able to uh, engage the credit union and, and Sarah in a conversation to try and show uh, the value of the program uh, to grad and professional students here and how that might fit in with the credit union's vision. And uh, we're very grateful uh, for the partnership with the credit union and, and the matching contribution of uh, the vice president of research and graduate studies, uh, studies uh, Dr. Stephen Shu. And Sarah, why was that federal credit union attracted to this partnership? Well, we're very pleased and proud to have a partnership with the university itself. Um, it dates back to when we were founded in 75 years ago by MSU professors. And we're proud to continue that partnership with the university through today. Um, we're pleased to have that already existing partnership with the COGS program. And when Stefan had um, approached us to talk about this a continued partnership with the conference grant program. It really aligned with our mission of being able to help students um, achieve financial security, their goals and their dreams. Mm -hmm. um, it was something that, you know, we feel that through this partnership with um, COGS program and Dr. Shu, that we're able to help more students be able to travel the world and attend key conferences and you know, facilitate their research and present and be able to have the experience and exposure that they need to be competitive within their field, their fields of research. And how many students now can you can benefit from this after the partnership? What are the masses that you'll be helping at this point? Sure. So if, uh, if you've looked over the last six or seven years, we've been able to fund about uh, only about 50 to 60 uh, percent uh, of the, the individuals who apply. So on an average uh, semester, say we get about a, 150, say 100 to 150 applications, we're only able to fund about 30 to 35 of them. Uh, now we'll able, be able to fund a lot closer uh, to about 80 to 90 of them. Uh, and uh, so that's a, a significant step forward uh, in terms of the numbers that we'll be able to send to conferences. And, and it's, it really is, I can't, um, I guess, overstate the importance of that to advanced degree students mm -hmm. because that is critical for their professional development. It's critical for them to be able to network with their peers and other thought leaders in their fields. And with your experience as a graduate student, have you gone to conferences as such and pre presentations? Oh, uh, well. Uh, uh, <laughs> Just to see the impact it has on you, you know, as a graduate student. Well, uh, what, what I do get, uh, <laughs> shall I say, I'll, I'll flip this around. Uh, uh, what I do get, uh, because I, I mostly stuck doing administrative work oh, here sure. on campus, sadly. <laughs> no escape <laughs> so for stuff. I don't get to go to fun places. Uh, you uh, live vicariously through your applicants. Uh, yes, I, I do. That's, that's typically my approach to most things. Uh, but no, uh, I, I think what we do get a lot of 
is letters at the end of the semester or letters uh, 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 when they turn in their receipts uh, showing a great deal of appreciation for the funding that COGS is able to provide uh, to them to send them on these conferences. Uh, because whether it's being able to, to present or just even attend the conferences at times, I think it is a, a great learning opportunity in many ways for these students. And will the MSU Federal Credit Union stay informed of where these students are going so you can almost track your partnership of funds? <laughs> yes, we truly view this as a partnership, as Stefan and I had talked about. It's It really is a partnership between the two organizations, and we hope to continue to learn about what's going on in these students' lives, how this opportunity impacted them, and share some of their stories um, through our site or other different items uh, through the credit union to be able to show people the impact that it's had and and really share the stories of the students and how it made a difference in their lives. And my last question, oh, yes, go ahead. Oh, no, I was gonna, I was gonna f follow up on that piece because I think that's key to, to extrapolate on is, it's not uh, just purely a financial partnership. Mm -hmm. It is a partnership in many different ways. And I am excited, I, I think, when we talk about highlighting uh, the importance of these opportunities for graduate students and sharing some of the stories. I think, uh, uh, Abby, you've heard me say before that the graduate and professional students uh, that we're 11,000 in number at the university, uh, but really a lot of the academic uh, back, uh, backbone or the research foundation of the university. Uh, graduate students play key roles uh, when it comes to those two central missions of MSU, and being able to show uh, how they fulfill that, uh, I think, is, is going to be uh, intriguing and, and interesting for, for people to get an in-depth uh, look at. I'm sure. Keep us updated. Uh, I will do. <laughs> and my last question is, as a president of COGS, what has been the most interesting conference you've seen somebody attend or maybe the craziest location? Just to give our listeners a little, you know, spiel on that. Well, I, I think uh, uh, we've seen uh, uh, horticulture students go to conferences in Beijing. Uh, we've seen everything from students attending uh, the American Bar Association conference, uh, which was held in, in Chicago either last year or the year before, all the way to med students going to the AMA. Uh, what, what, what we say is the diversity of conferences students go to and the reasons they go to them uh, are interesting to see. And, and then the programs, we get copies of the programs on the back end. <laughs> and so our office sometimes just, you know, reads through these. And, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, I think you can just learn a lot just reading the programs. I can't even imagine actually attending the conferences themselves. So. Oh, well, thank you very much. And congratulations on the partnership. We look forward to seeing what comes of it. Thank you. Thank you. Not so hard now to define what constitutes the line. Everything that once was crossed to the other side. What I'm talking all about is the friend. Sequestered from the life of living and everything that comes with it. With a ghost in the basement, all your amazement. With a ghost in the basement, all your amazement. With a ghost in the basement.
time you think you misplaced your favorite rock Every time the scents go missing beneath the cushions Every time your silverware draws a mess Every time you think you lost what you were looking for are misplaced that's us yeah. we're the ghosts in the basement all the other amazement the ghosts in the basement all the other amazement we're the ghosts in the basement all the other amazement we're the ghosts in the basement Desmond Jones is a Lansing-based band that has currently been on tour around Michigan. Although no one in the band is actually named Desmond Jones, I caught up with the group last week. I'm John Novak, and I play the drums. I'm Isaac Bergowitz, and I play the guitar. I'm Chris Boda, and I also play the guitar. I'm George Falk. I usually play the saxophone, but I'm playing violin today. <laughs> uh, I'm John Loria, and I play the bass. Well, welcome to Exposure. Thanks for having us. This is Desmond Jones. Well, we got the name actually from uh, a Beatles song okay. from Oba Dee Wa Da. So, Molly, or Desmond and Molly Jones. So, Are you Beatles fans? Yes, I am. Well, we are, I don't think. I, like I mean, we like the Beatles. Beatles. Yeah, yeah, everyone likes the Beatles. <laughs> so, Desmond Jones was an okay name. You solidified yourselves on yeah. that. We had some other options, but they were a little weird. So, <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to share some of those options? Jelly. <laughs> Toad Frog, Frog was a big one. Uh, Frosty Nips, I believe. Ooh! <laughs> that, would, that could be open to interpretation, uh, I think. Moon Rover. Yeah. Moon Rover was a big one. That was actually a really good one. I liked mm. that one a lot. 
It's a good one. I feel like if you had that, it'd be more like the space music, this like retro feel. But what is your style of music? How would you describe it? Um, <laughs> I don't know. It says spacey folk jam on the um, Facebook page, so <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but it's like pretty much rock and roll with a little funky twist to it, I guess. Would you agree? Yeah. More yeah. Or less. yeah. yeah we play a lot of funk, blues, jam stuff. Are there certain artists jazz. that have inspired you to play this or that you kind of look after to not imitate, but, you know, have similarities? Yeah, we're really influenced by people like Frank Zappa, mm -hmm. um, like a lot of jazz people like Mingus and Coltrane, and then, you know, obviously Fish and the Dead, stuff like that. So it all kind of just comes together in this Spacey weird... Spacey folk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. So when did you start becoming a band? John and I uh, started playing in... Sixth or sixth grade or seventh grade? Oh, wow. Sixth grade. Yeah, so we've been in bands all through middle school and high school, and then we got here, and we didn't really play much beginning of the year. And so at the end, I was like, all right, well, I kind of want to get something back together. So I grabbed John, and then we made flyers, and I put them up around the school. And uh, Chris was actually the only one that replied to it, so that ended up working out. <laughs> yeah, so we played one show in 2012 in the spring. It was like April yeah. during the spring semester. And then we played a couple times over the summer, just knowing that we were going to do something next year, but not knowing what. Mm -hmm. And then we put out a face or a Craigslist ad. And, and that's uh, that's how they guy. got me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Frequent Craigslist. I, I just, we're all still <laughs> alive. Don't <laughs> <laughs> oh my! I, I just moved to East Lansing, and I was um, looking for jobs wherever I could book for them. And uh, Craigslist was obviously one of those places. So. In, uh, in an, an effort to convince myself that I was still being productive, but not being productive, I ended up browsing a bunch of like the musical and uh, creative, like what what is it like gigs? Uh, gigs? gigs yeah, yeah, I think you guys posted in gigs. I didn't know that was a there's a category so of gigs. Yeah, most of it is like looking for adult film actresses, but then, I then, can then, so. then but right below is an ad for a saxophone. Spacey folk music. Uh, <laughs> it was for a saxophone and keys, okay. um, and I showed up one day, and I... Just, were you a little nervous? I, I mean, I, I wasn't too I afraid. We were pretty intimidated. Like, you just walking into like, some death trap. <laughs> <Yeah>. Some alley. <laughs> some saxophone experience. <laughs> Moral hall. is a must. <laughs> But, no, um, Isaac yeah. and I were impressed right away with both Chris and George. And George came in yeah. to play the saxophone, and Isaac and I, all through high school, have always wanted to have a horn yeah. section. We actually, uh, we actually got a, a double sax response on that day because uh, one of our another person showed up for sax, and he played with us for quite a while, but uh, he plays with us no longer. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was peaceful. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> yeah, we. If he's the listening, stuff, James, we, we miss you. you. <laughs> yeah, James, come back. Come back. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, Isaac and I almost felt like we were auditioning for George at the time because we were so blown away by his talent, and that was seriously that was one of the like one of the biggest pickups <laughs> we've ever had. Yeah, that was sweet. Well, that's it, very nice. George. It took us a really long time to find a bass player, too. We actually went through four bass players. Well, three before John. Yeah, three yeah. bass players. Actually, two people from Wayne Selinski were our bass players. <laughs> so we had, <laughs> yeah. so we had half of Wayne Selinski in our band at one point. And then, um, and then uh, I was just walking through the dorms, like my dorm one day, and I heard someone playing bass, so I just walked into his room, and it was Johnny. So I just made him come practice with us. Oh, my goodness. 
No, no. Yeah, I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> <laughs> Are you glad you were playing bass that one day, that fateful uh, day in your dormitory? Um, yeah. It was, it was quite a surprise when he walked in, but... <laughs> Isaac never knocked. <laughs> yeah, he didn't knock. I, I just, until he, like, practically tapped me on the shoulder, I had no idea he was in there. You were in your zone, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> so to speak. Well, right now you guys are on tour around Michigan, so how's that been going? Uh, it's been pretty fun. We just started getting back into the shows in the last month. We took about a month or two off in the summer just because everyone's spaced out around the state. But, um, yeah, we just started getting some shows around here, and then we've got a few coming up in Kalamazoo and uh, Lansing. Lansing, and then I think we're going to be hitting Grand Rapids pretty soon. So, But it's been a lot of fun. Is it? Do you guys get along mostly on tour? No. Yeah. no. <laughs> At least you're honest. <laughs> no, but, I mean, we don't really ever travel for extended periods of time mm -hmm. just because everyone has stuff going on. So we don't have to, like, deal with each other 24-7 with a lot of bands, too, <laughs> which would be a great thing. I mean, I, I don't so think... far, I'd say we've gone along. I think we, yeah. we'd yeah. handle, we, for yeah. who we do, we were fine. Yeah, um, we would handle yeah. it better than most bands because you hear stories of people going on tour and hating each other mm -hmm. and, like, but no, we're all really good friends. Yeah, we now, get so. appropriate doses of each other. Yeah. <laughs> you have a timer. Time's up. Yeah. Yep. You, John, you gotta leave. <laughs> Isaac, you're done. <laughs> now, what's been your favorite place to play so far? Uh, dormitory, right? <laughs> my dorm. Where your talent is found. <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, we've frequented the loft a decent amount. Hard to say, I guess. I'm always a big fan of the basement shows. And yeah, I agree. The basement's like, us. I don't know, we've played at uh, what, Henrik or whatever? Hedrick. 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 That's Hedrick. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we've, we did uh, Orion and Vesta, and those were all just great shows. Oh, yeah. yeah. And do you guys create your own music lyrically, or do you um, just play it? Songs that have already been created? What's your style in that sense? It's mostly originals. Okay. We'll do covers like normal bands will. Mm -hmm. Like we'll throw in a couple per set, but it's mostly original stuff. We like to throw some crowd favorites in, like at parties and yeah, stuff, just so to keep people well. interested. So, who does most of the writing? This guy. Yeah. Isaac. I do. <laughs> yeah. So you don't knock what you do write. So that's yeah, good. That's... <laughs> uh, now, what do you guys hope for the future of this band? What's next besides the tour of Michigan? Tour the world. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're probably just gonna keep playing and take it seriously and just see what happens. Yeah, I don't think we really have a lot of expectations. It's just fun. That's good. Yeah, just so, try to build up as much of a crowd as we can. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It'd be nice to you know be able to play in front of a lot of people, but right now it's fun just to play in front of friends and small crowds. Is there anything on the band's bucket list? Maybe places to play or people to play for. I don't think we ever thought about that. We should probably do that one day. <laughs> like a realistic one? Or? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you feel. It can be both. Bucket list, dream list. <laughs> Bucket list is, you know, can be whatever your heart desires. We talked about wanting to play at Red Rocks, which would be yeah, amazing. Mm -hmm. I always argue Madison Square Garden, though. Dream. Yeah, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't set your own limitations. It's like a dream. Yeah, yeah, it's a dream. That's a dream. Red Rocks is big enough. Okay. 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 Have Chris's basement back, it'd be good. Yeah. <laughs> also long shot. Yeah. <laughs> well, gentlemen, thank you very much. We're going to close the show with you. So without further ado. Yeah, thanks right. for Thank you. Thank thanks you. a lot. All right, we are Desmond Jones, and um, this first song is called Damp as the Dew.
shining through Guys of unknown We're driving into We hover above Space that that is all we have for tonight ladies and gentlemen thank you for tuning in it was my pleasure special thanks to our producer gabriella saldivia our station manager sam riddle and our general manager ed glazer keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next week i'm abby newton impact exposure 89 fm broadcasting from the campus of michigan state university you've been listening to impact exposure